Let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 6. If you want a title for today's message, I've called it There All Along. And we're going to be studying just four verses from verse 53 to the end of verse 56. This is the word of the Lord. So let's gather around it and pay attention to it. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we gather around your word, having sung praises to you, having worshipped you, having marveled at you in song, Lord, we now want to marvel at you in your word. Lord, as we go through this story, as we consider chapters 1 through 6, Lord, would it be today as if we're there? as if we're one of your disciples walking with you, engaging with you, admiring you, marveling at you. Lord, only you can do that. Only you can bring stories alive to our hearts. Holy Spirit, only you can open our eyes so that we can behold you like that. So Lord, help us. This is all you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. David McCulloch was indeed quite the author. He won the Pulitzer Prize, two National Book Awards, and dozens of other honours. And not a single one of his books, including Truman, 1992, The Great Bridge, 1972, and The Path Between the Seas, The Creation of the Panama Canal, 1977, have ever been out of print. And the following then is an interview that Mr. McCulloch did with Elizabeth Gaffney and Benjamin Howe, which helps us see about Mr. McCulloch. And in their introduction of this interview, we get to understand him even more. This is what they write. Nothing good was ever written in a large room, David McCulloch says. And so his own office has been reduced to a windowed shed in the backyard of his Martha's Vineyard home. Known as the bookshop, the shed does not have a telephone or running water. Its primary contents are a royal typewriter, a green banker's lamp, and a desk, which Mr. McCulloch keeps control over by flushing out the loose papers after each chapter is finished. The view from inside the bookshop is of a sagging barn surrounded by pasture, and to keep from being startled, McCulloch asks his family members to whistle as they approach the shed when he is writing. In person, McCulloch is somewhat different from the image projected on public television, where he frequently hosts and narrates programs. The voice coming out of the shadows across the room was full of emotion. His face seemed longer, his eyes larger. He gestured often, sometimes calling attention to nearby objects, such as a piece of cable from the Brooklyn Bridge. And at the end of the meeting, he issued an impromptu dinner invitation. 
and whipped up a delicious pasta with clam sauce, apparently one of his specialities. Then the interview begins. Question one. David, would you tell us about the motto tacked over your desk? Certainly. It says, look at your fish. It's the test that Louis Agassi, the 19th century Harvard naturalist, gave every new student. He would take an odorous old fish out of a jar, set it in a tin pan in front of the student, and say, look at your fish. Then Agassi would leave, and when he came back, he would ask the student what he'd seen. Not very much, they would often say. So Agassi would say it again, look at your fish. This could go on for days. The student would be encouraged to draw the fish, but could use no tools for the examination, just hands and eyes. Samuel Scudder, who later became a famous entomologist and expert on grasshoppers, left us the best account of the, quote, ordeal with the fish. After several days, he could still not see whatever it was Agassi wanted him to see. But he said, I see how little I saw before. Then Scudder had a brainstorm, and he announced it to Agassi the next morning. Paired organs, the same on both sides. Of course, of course, Agassi said, very pleased. So Scudder naturally asked what he should do next. And Agassi said, look at your fish. My color reflects, I love that story. And I've used it often when teaching classes on writing. Because seeing is so important in this work. Listen. Insight comes, more often than not, from looking at what's been on the table all along, in front of everybody, than from discovering something new. Insight comes, more often than not, from looking at what's been on the table all along, in front of everybody, rather than from discovering something new. That is wonderful counsel from Mr. McCulloch. And it is particularly relevant, I think, to all of us as we consider this summary of Jesus' ministry right here in chapter 6, from verses 53 through 56. Because the question, I think, that should, we should be asking as we come to this text is, why is it here? Why is this summary statement here? What's the point? Why didn't we just tag it to last week's message or tag it to the one next week? Because what is it all about? You see, just yesterday, if we follow the last 24 hours of Jesus' ministry, just yesterday, we've seen some pretty incredible things. Just yesterday, the disciples walk back up from their mission. Jesus, knowing they're tired, he goes over to the other side of the lake. And there he performs one of the greatest miracles ever told, as he turns five loaves and two fish into enough food to feed 5,000 men plus wives and children. It's an incredible miracle. Incredible, there's 12 baskets of food are then just left over at the end of the day. And then just last night, Jesus has been seen walking on water to get into the boat with the disciples, which causes them to be utterly astounded as the storm then stills as he gets into the boat. And then in chapter 7, which we're going to see next week, the mood is intense once again, and we're going to see the Pharisees and the scribes back on the scene. 
The whole tone and mood of Mark's gospel begins to change as the scribes dig their heels in ever increasingly against Jesus and he ever increasingly stands against them. And so you can wonder why this summary statement then in between. Why not just keep the fast pace going? Why not just go from chapter 6 verse 52 straight to chapter 7? This would be make it move faster. Why is this summary statement here. There's no specific village mentioned, no specific people mentioned. So why is it here? Well, it's here, I believe, to show us what has been on the table all along. It's a summary statement, not only of this situation, but in part over the entirety of chapters 1 through 6. Because Mark wants to show us what's been on the table all along. He wants to show us Christ, which is what he's been doing since the start of the book. He wants to picard Jesus Christ as the Savior, as the King of kings and Lord of lords before our eyes. But more than that, as he shows us Christ, he doesn't want to give us something new. He wants to show us what's been on the table about him all along. And as you examine the summary with that in mind that you get to realize afresh, this is inspired. And this piece of scripture then isn't here by accident, but it's divinely inspired. And it's here to show us something that God wants to show us this morning. So what does Mark want us to see? What does he want us to see that has been on the table all along? Well, three things. Here's the first. Number one, the patience of God. The patience of this King of kings and Lord of lords. The patience of God the Son. And in particularly, it is on full display in this, in this passage. Particularly as it pertains in his patience towards the disciples. I mean, in verse 51, which Brendan looked at last week, Jesus gets into the boat with his disciples. A great storm is taking place. He walks on top of water to them. He gets in the boat and the storm stills and it says, quote, that they are utterly astounded. They're amazed. And yet, what becomes clear as the story continues is that they still don't get it. They still don't get who he is. They're still shocked as they consider what has taken place. They don't understand what has just taken place, and nor do they understand who Jesus is, which is why we read in verse 52, but their hearts were hardened. It's a conclusionary verse, which helps us see this is the present state of the disciples. They've been through so much, but they just don't get it. And that's the way it's been all the way through the story of uh, the Gospel of Mark all along. Ever since Jesus called their names in chapter 1, they've still not understood it. That's astounding. They've been with Jesus the whole time, which by now is around two years. They've had exclusive access to Jesus. They've talked to Jesus. They've followed Jesus around. They've spent time with him both day and night. They were there when Jesus heals the man with the unclean spirit in the synagogue. That's where it all started. He's preaching, he's sharing the gospel with people. This guy starts to just foam at the mouth and this demon starts to talk out of this man. The disciples are all sitting there on the front row going, what on earth is that? What is he going to do now? He rebukes the demon, it flees. The disciples saw that. 
They're then there when people start to gather around Jesus' home and he's healing the sick in their hundreds and thousands. They're there when the demon-possessed man comes running out of the hills of the Gerasenes towards them and they're scared and afraid and Jesus just stops the man in his tracks and rebukes all the demons out of him. They're there at Simon and Andrew's house when they, they realize that the roof is starting to cave in and then they notice some dude is being lowered through the roof. He's a paralyzed guy. You know, he's had it. What are we going to do now? And Jesus says to him, rise, get up and walk. And they see this man with their own eyes get up and walking out the house. They've heard Jesus teach for two years. They've heard his voice. They've heard his teaching in parables that they didn't at first understand, but they've all had the parables explained to them. Jesus has given him what he calls the secret things of the kingdom of God. They were there just yesterday when Jesus feeds the 5,000. They were holding the baskets. They were the ones trying to peer in, wondering, how is he doing that? Is it just sort of coming from thin air or what's going on? They were there, keep returning to Jesus with the baskets. They were in the boat just last night when they saw Jesus walking on the waves towards them. I mean, don't think of this as some out there experience. This was their lives. They're just guys like us. This is what they've seen. And yet their hearts are hardened. They don't get it. They still haven't got a clue who Jesus is. There appears to be no discernible growth in their perception of who Jesus is throughout the entirety of these chapters, throughout the entirety of this time. They don't get it. And so behold what has been on the table in front of us all along. And behold then the patience of God displayed in verse 53. See, just yesterday, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Just last night, he walks on water to get into the boat with them. And it's seeing that they don't get it, Seeing that they don't perceive yet who he is, he comes to shore in verse 53. He docks the boat and full then of grace and poise, he continues to show these 12 guys, this is who I am. Watch this. I can see you don't get it, so I'm going to keep performing more mighty works until you do get it. So I'm going to heal people in their hundreds because I want you to get it. My friends, don't miss this. It's subtle. But what is on full display throughout our time all along is the patience of God. Imagine his patience with them. Jesus has been tempted just as we have, yet without sin. You know what I would have done? After one thing, one thing, I would have gone, forget it, I'm looking for 12 more. This is just not going to work out. You guys are dense. Pick the wrong guys. Thanks for coming. Eh. And yet he doesn't. Just keeps walking with them. Two years. Keeps showing them. And even now, having just yesterday performed a miracle where he's fed 5,000 people, how he's walked on water towards them, their hearts are still hardened. He's not cross with them. He's not irritated with them. He comes to shore and to show them grace again, he starts healing people again. Full of patience. It's worth our admiration, isn't it? And it's worth our marveling because what is on display here on the table is the patience of God. And as you behold it, my friends, and as you marvel at it, you need to understand why this is here. 
Because it's here to help us see not only Christ in his majesty and patience, but it's here to show us how Christ in his patience operates towards us as well, as his disciples. How his patience pervades his personality towards us as well. See, one of my greatest concerns sometimes as a pastor is just how many people can feel that God is just tolerating them. Given all that their life is, given all the things that they seem to fail in, they're called to do by Jesus, but they just haven't done it, they don't manage to do it. All the things they're called not to do by the Lord, they find themselves doing. And what they feel as a result is that God is in some way just tolerating them. I mean, for sure, they're in the church and they're grateful to be in the church. They know they're saved. That's sweet. But in their heart, they feel like the guy sitting at the back, feeling that God is just probably putting up with them. They're in the family, but they're the quirky uncle of the family. They've only just got in somehow. And so they sit slightly out of it. And yet the truth is, all the way through the Bible, and in particular chapters 1 through 6 of the Gospel of Mark, We get to learn that God in his grace isn't tolerating anybody. In his grace, he came on the greatest rescue mission ever told and gave his life as a ransom for many. And then in his grace, he called your name. Not just tolerating you, he called your name at a million's loss. As a disciple, he called you to him and then gave his life for you so that you may have life and that in abundance. He's not tolerating you. I'll tell you what he is doing. He's being patient with you. It's important that we understand the distinction. Because when you think somebody is tolerating you, it causes you to back off them, does it not? Because you think, oh, this is awkward. I just feel they're tolerating me. But when you're aware that someone in grace and splendor is being patient with you, that doesn't cause you to back off. I think that causes you to embrace them, to thank them. Thank you for dispositioning yourself like that to me being patient with me. J.I. Packer counsels us this way. He says, appreciate the patience of God. Think how he is born with you and still bears with you, even when so much of your life is unworthy of him and you have so richly deserved his rejection. Learn to marvel at his patience. What helpful counsel for us as Christians. Learn to marvel at his patience. And I'd have to say, at the age of 40 years old, the older I have become, the more I have marveled at his patience. I mean, I was a teenager, I was a Mr. Face in both ways. Church was sweet, and the world was sweet. I wanted both equally. And yet God was patient with me. Even when I was making stupid decisions, foolish decisions, God wasn't there tolerating me. He wasn't there ticked off with me. But he was patient with me. And when I gave my life to the Lord, I felt like I'm never going to do anything wrong ever again. I was so amazed by grace. It's like, that's it. I'm totally in. I will go anywhere for you. I will serve you all of my life. I will never do anything wrong. I very much doubt I will ever do anything wrong again because I love you so much. I'm amazed by grace. And within a few days, I'm aware, oh my gosh, 
Even though I've given my life to the Lord, I appear to have taken myself with me. I'm still blowing it. And I can feel like the Apostle Paul. He says at different times, you know, why is it that I keep doing the things that I know I not ought to do? Why do I not do the things that I know I should? Oh, what a wretched man I am. I could take you to so many instances just in the last year where I could show you, see, see this, is, this is the reality of my life. And look with the reality of my life at the patience of God towards me. I don't think I'm peculiar. Well, I probably am a little bit, but I'm the same in essence. I'm no different for you guys. God is patient with us by his grace. So we need to marvel at it. We need to admire it. The disciples were richly deserving of the Savior's rejection. They were richly deserving of him turning around and going, you know what, guys, just forget it. There's nothing else I can do. I'm kind of all out of miracles now. I'm struggling to come up with more things for you. If you haven't seen it yet, don't worry about it. Yet he didn't. Pulls the boat into shore. Okay, guys. Well, let's go again. Let's go again. Profound patience. And it's a patience that he exhibits to me and you as well. With the phrase, okay, church. Okay, sovereign grace. Let's go again. Let me help you see again. Admire it. It's been on the table all along. But that's not all that's been on the table all along. Number two, it's also been before our eyes, is the authority of God. The authority of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The theme of authority has been on the table throughout chapters 1 through 6. It's always been here. And so in chapter 1, we see him teaching in the synagogue. And that unclean spirit that I talked about a moment ago, he's preaching and teaching like this. Some guy starts to foam at the mouth, the demon starts to come forth. And it says that the crowd at that moment, understanding what is going on, says, what is this? A new teaching with authority? They've never seen anything like this before. They've had rabbis and preachers talking about somebody to come. But this one is saying, I'm here. And then to show he's here, he rebukes this demon and it leaves. What is this? This teaching with authority. Chapter 2, he heals a paralyzed guy. Literally, this man lowered through the ceiling of where he is preaching and teaching, along with the scribes and the Pharisees. And knowing that there are scribes and Pharisees sat right before him in their white cloaks, he says, you know what, before I'm going to heal him, here we go, this will set, this will set the cat amongst the pigeons. My son, your, sons are, your, your sins are forgiven. I mean, that is an outrageous comment. Because only God can forgive sins. The scribes are foaming at the mouth upon this news. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Only God can forgive sins. And so that you know then that I'm he. Son, rise up, take your mat, and go home. That's exactly what happens. They're amazed. This is teaching and power with authority. Chapter 3, he heals a whole stack of people. And casts out a whole load of evil spirits. And the scribes begin to question him about it. Saying, hey, we figured it out. We're pretty sure that you must be in allegiance with Satan himself. And that's what's giving you the power to do it. Jesus tells them in no uncertain terms, I'm not one of Satan's. No, I'm binding Satan. 
I'm binding the strong man. I'm in effect binding him even now and that is why I have the power to remove these demons from people. I'm plundering his house and this is just the beginning because I'm the king and this is what I've come for. In chapters 4 and 5, Mark has carefully shown us Jesus' authority over nature, over demons, over Satan, over sickness, even over death. Jesus can go to someone and say, hey, rise and walk when they were dead a moment before. And then in chapter 6 that we've just seen, he shows his authority over creation. He feeds 5,000 people from five loaves and two fish. That is not possible unless you're the king, unless you're God. And then you can do all things. And he shows his power over water by walking on it. I've never been able to do that. How much faith you sort of muster up. It seems to be that as soon as you go on it, whoa, you're in. Not so with Jesus. You, molecule of water, you can stand for me because I'm the king. So I'm coming on the top. All the way through, Mark has been seeking to show us the authority of Jesus Christ because he's been seeking to show us that Jesus Christ is the authoritative Lord. This is the king. This is the creator of the earth. This is the one who's been doing it all. This is the one who breathes out the stars. This is the one who says to the tides, this far and no further. This is God, the authoritative Lord. And yet if you pay attention to the table, what's been in front of us all along, you also see that he's not only been teaching us that he is the authoritative Lord, he's also been teaching us that he is the authoritative Lord who will always be enough for us as his disciples. That he'll always be with us. That he'll never let us go. That he'll always be in our boat and that he will always empower us. That when he calls us to do something, he will always be with us and he will give us the power and grace to do it. Chapters 1 through 6 have been a school, not only to show us Christ, but to show us how Christ relates to us as his disciples. That's what's been on the table. See, there is no doubt at all that there is a high and holy calling on our lives as his disciples. No doubt. And we should never, as Christians, play that down. Ever. Never get nervous about it, never get scared of it, never play it down as if to say, no, Christianity, great, it's just on a Sunday. Now, Christianity is our life. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is our lives. In Mark chapter 6, these disciples that we see before our eyes in this chapter, they would go on to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Twelve guys aged between about 18 and 22. There isn't Christianity all over the world. There's just 12 guys, slightly bigger than a soccer team, going, ha, uh, uh, did you just say Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria? Whoa, come back, you go, whoa. And that's exactly what they did. They started to brandish the gospel and take it out. God would use them to take the gospel out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. These 12 guys. These 12 guys that are barely older than kids. Yeah, that's exactly what they did. Empowered by the Lord, knowing that he would always be with them, they go and they do great things for the Lord. But the truth is, it's not just a high and holy calling on their lives. As Christians, 
as disciples, we have a profound and high and holy calling on our lives as well. Do you see that? All the way through this book. We're called to make disciples of all nations, to go therefore in the power of Jesus Christ and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that he's commanded us, which is like this book, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a mammoth calling on our lives. Sometimes you speak to people and they say, oh, I wonder if I'm called. I wonder if I'm called. Oh, yeah, you're called. It's called to go and make disciples of all nations. Rest assured, man and woman alike, you are called to something truly profound. To go make disciples of all nations. To brandish the gospel in our workplaces, in our colleges, in our families, and proclaim and live Christ through our lives. We're called then in our marriages to model Christ. As husbands, we're called to lay our lives down for our wives, to lead them, to nourish them, to cherish them, to care for them and pastor them for the glory of the Lord. And according to Ephesians 5, our wives are called to follow and honor us as we do that. So as we lay our lives down for them, they seek to follow and honor us so together God's created order can reveal Christ and the church in the context of marriage. In parenting, called to train our kids in the way they should go. Is that not a daunting task to you? Because it is to me. Because I am me. And you think, oh my goodness, I'm called by God to dazzle my kids with the gospel. That, that is a huge task. A huge task. And I can't just have them be dropped off to me once a week for two hours where I can be on good behavior. They get to see me all the rest of the time. And yet I'm called to train them. Maybe they should be training me. You know, it's, just, it's a hard task. In our single years, we're called to embrace it as a gift from the Lord and redeem the time for the sake of the gospel. That's what we're called to. In our work, we're called to work unto the Lord. So when you arrive at work and you leave at work and you're tempted to complain at your boss because you don't really like them, what God says is, don't worry about him being your boss, I'm your boss. So worship me in your work. Do this as worship to me. We're called to serve in the church in a way that is connected and committed for the glory of the Lord. The example being Christ who laid his life down for his bride. And as we'll see later on in the Gospel of Mark, he's going to encourage us to do the same. To be connected, to be committed to our local church and give our lives away for the bride. We're called to fight sin. Put off the old self, renew the mind, put on the new self. We're called to love others, not just sometimes, now and again, but all the time. Give your lives away for people and love them. Is it just me or is this not a high and holy calling on our lives? It is profound. And here's the reality. It's a high and holy calling on our lives as his disciples that we're just not adequate to do, are we? In and of ourselves, we cannot do this. It's just too much. Therein lies the point. All the way through, what has been on the table in front of us is a saviour that's saying to us, I have a high and holy calling on your lives as disciples. It's going to be huge. It's going to be mammoth for you. And you will be tempted to say to me, I just can't do it. I, I can't do it. 
Well, here's what he's trying to show you all the way through Gospel of Mark. You cannot do it by yourselves. But in him, you will always be able to do it. That's the message. That was the message of the feeding of the 5,000. That's why the story's there. That's why there's that whole section where the disciples, when Jesus says to them, after they're like panicking and saying, listen, I don't know who's going to feed them. I don't know if it's going to work out. And Jesus says to them, hey, I've got an idea. You feed them. And they start to panic going, well, I can't feed them. We haven't got any money. We haven't got like, I can't just create this stuff. What are we going to do now? I don't know what we're going to do. And Jesus, shaking his head, just says to him, hey, listen, go see what they got out there. Hey, Jesus, yeah, we have five loaves, two fish. <laughs> Told you, not going to go around. Hey, well, listen, I'll pray over that stuff. See what happens now, guys. Just stand close. Praying over this stuff. He looks to heaven, prays. Whoa, there's a lot of bread in there and a lot of fish. Yeah, start giving it out. It was a lesson all the time to teach the disciples that Jesus Christ is going to call you to great things and you will not be able to do it by yourselves. But as you look to him, he will do it for you. It's been on the table all along. Not just for the disciples, but for all disciples of all time. To realize God is powerful and he has a high and holy calling on your lives which you are not adequate to do in and of yourselves, but through his power, he will perform great things through you. He always will. You've just got to keep going back with that basket and say, would you help me? Because all what you've called me to do, I can't do it. But with you, I can. It's been on the table all along. The patience of God and the authority of God. And then finally, number three, the compassion of God. The compassion of the Son of God, and particularly towards the suffering of multitude, is on display here in this summary description in profound proportions. I mean, you have to remember as you come into verse 53, Jesus is way tired. A lot has gone on. Just yesterday morning, prior to the feeding of the 5,000, his 12 disciples have come back to him. They've been telling him all about what's going on. Hey, Jesus, you never guess what. I probably will, but try me anyway. Um, well, you never guess what. You know, we were telling people about you, and they gave their lives to you. They wanted to follow this gospel thing. It's amazing. And we were rebuking demons, and they actually came out. And we were praying for people, and they got healed. It's unbelievable. They're exhilarated. They are exhausted. They are tired. They've been serving Jesus tirelessly. And we learn from the Gospel of John that Jesus is tired because while they've gone, he's been doing exactly the same thing in the villages around him, telling people about him, seeking to heal people, seeking to rebuke demons from people. And so Jesus, perceiving that they're tired, just yesterday morning, seeks to take them over to the other side of the lake for a rest. But as they get to the other side of the lake, as we saw a few weeks, they have a welcoming party of 5,000 men plus wives and children. There is no rest. The disciples want to reverse the boat. Jesus says, no, we're going in. Want to talk to them. Want to love them. This is who I've come for. So they do that all day. Jesus preaches all day yesterday. He preaches the whole day. That's why the disciples say, hey, it's getting kind of late. They're getting kind of hungry. What they're probably saying is, it's getting kind of late. We're getting hungry. You know, that's probably what's going on there. But Jesus is like, no, they can't go yet. You feed them. Okay, you can't feed them. I'll feed them through you. 
So he prays, he creates all this stuff. He feeds the 5,000. They want to take him as king at this point because they're zealots. They want to make him king right now, thinking that he's going to overthrow Rome here and now. This is the one we've been waiting for. And he realizes, I haven't come for this. This isn't what I've come to do. I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. I am your king, but not in the way you perceive. So he runs up a hill, in effect, to evade them. Somehow he mysteriously comes down, he grabs his disciples, puts them in a boat, sends them to the other side of the lake, and while they're rowing for heaven, not getting anywhere because of the storm, Jesus is praying all night on the top of the hill. And he sees them. Oh my goodness, they don't seem to be making much headway today. So he goes down, gets on the lake, starts walking towards them, gets in the boat, They're utterly astounded. The storm stops. And then, verse 53, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. There is no break here for Jesus. He is exhausted. But look then at what he does next. Verse 54. And when they got out the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. He's tired, but here we go again. As Jesus disembarks from the boat, he is immediately recognized by everybody who is around. They weren't expecting him, they weren't anticipating him, but they know who he is. His fame has spread far and wide, and upon recognizing him, the people run around the whole region to inform and collect the sick. I mean, there was no Twitter. There is no Instagram. There is no Facebook. No one can say, hey, come to the shore. So what we have here is human Facebook, human Twitter, which means people run around. They run around and they tell everybody, you've got to come. And Gennesaret was about three miles wide and a mile deep. It was a very, very, very heavily populated place. The soil was actually really amazing in Gennesaret. It's really good to grow things. Loads of people live there. Very populated. People are running around from house to house saying, Jesus is here. You know, the the miracle maker, the healer. Have you got anybody sick? You have? Get him out here. You've got to find this guy. He can heal you. Let's go. Everybody is trying to grab everybody to come and encounter Jesus. And you can understand the urgency and the desperation in their tone. This is 2,000 years ago, my friends. No hospitals. You're not going to be rocking up at A&E. No modern medicine. Your child gets sick. There's nothing you can do. Can you imagine the desperation? There is a man over there that heals people. Get this child up in the cot and let's go. We've got to get to him. If we could just touch the hem of his garment, I'm sure we'll get healed. You can imagine the urgency and desperation in their tone. They are without hope. But then a healer rocks up. And this happens, verse 56. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they may touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. He's tired. He needs rest. And these crowds, they're not coming to him for the right reason. 
There's no mention very deliberately in the Gospel of Mark of Jesus preaching the Gospel to them here. Because he's not. And the reason why he's not is because there are people clamoring around him wherever he goes just to try and touch him, believing if I can just touch you, then I'll be healed, or my kid will be healed, or my friend will be healed. They are basically just getting around the Savior. They don't want to know about the Savior. They don't even care who he is particularly. They don't, all this stuff about you being the king, yeah, thanks for that. Uh, that's lovely. Can you heal me? Everybody is pursuing the Savior in the crowd for them, what they can get out of it. They want a quick fix to their problem that they perceive is the biggest problem overall. Don't tell me any of this stuff about repentance. Lovely, thanks for that. We're not interested in that, but heal me. Jesus is tired. The crowds are not pursuing him for the right reasons. And yet impatience and power and compassion... He heals them anyway. He lets them touch the hem of his garment and they're healed. And he prays for them and they're healed. Friends, don't miss this because this is the compassion of God. Admire it. Marvel at it. We cannot miss this compassion. We must not miss this compassion. And as we admire it, and as we marvel at it, we must not miss that it is this compassionate disposition that he has towards you as well. This is how he feels about you. This is how he seeks to care for you. My friends, do you believe that? Do you realize it? Do you believe it? Do you believe that his disposition of compassion towards you is no different from his disposition of compassion to the multitudes displayed here in this summary? Do you see it? Do you believe it? Moreover, are you convinced by it? Are you convinced that this is the way he positions himself towards you? Because I believe Mark wants you to be convinced. I believe he wants you to be utterly convinced that as a disciple of Christ, this is exactly the way he feels towards you. That's why, in part, it's been on the table all along. Because he wants you to see this is the Savior and this is how he feels about you. This is his disposition towards you. He feels compassion towards you. He loves you. And to utterly convince us, Mark is going to ensure that the story doesn't finish in chapter 6, but it continues on and on and on all the way to Calvary. Where he placards before our eyes the compassion of Christ for you. Where he gives his life for you. Because he loves you. Because he has compassion on you. My friends, I'm sure given the amount of people in this room in this moment that there will be a number going through a storm. Going through a trial. Going through a crisis. Something that is taking place in your house. Maybe an illness. Maybe a challenge in your marriage. Maybe a challenge in your single years. Maybe something to do with one of your kids. 
or at work or in your finances. We all face storms of many different kinds. But the reality of what's been on the table all along before us is that his authority plus his compassion is all we need. He's in your boat. Always has been. Will never step out of the boat. As you perceive the storm going on all around you, the message of chapters 1 through 6 is, yes, the storms will come, but I will be with you. And so you have nothing to fear. Because Jesus is going to be in the boat. Always has been. And always will be. Insight comes, more often than not, from looking at what's been on the table all along, in front of everybody, rather than from discovering something new. This summary statement isn't not needed. He's showing us the table. So behold the patience of God. Behold his patience with his disciples. And be aware that that's how he's patient with you as well. And me. Behold the authority of God. His power and splendor over all things. The power and splendor that he will empower us with as we go about the task of working out our salvation with fear and trembling. As we go about the task of living out the calling that we've received. As we take that basket that's half empty nearly all the time and look to the Lord and say, I just can't do what you've called me to do by myself. He says, yeah, I know. You were never meant to. Here's my grace. This will help you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And behold the compassion of God. He's not tolerating you. He passionately loves you and always will. So keep looking up. Don't stop looking up. And in him, may we all find a sweet peace. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for the way the word encourages us and equips us and comforts us. And Lord, as we behold this word, Lord, we thank you for what we see. Because what we see is you in your splendor and in your patience and in your power and in your compassion. Lord, would that be a comfort then to each and every one of us in the room? Your power plus your compassion is all we need and always will be. So in you, may we glorify, may we admire, and may we find a sweet peace. Jesus' name. Amen.